Welcome to Queer Devotions. This is Bridget Pulifry. Today on the show, Dr. Alex Abramovich is an expert on 2SLGBTQ plus youth houselessness, and he has been addressing the issue for the past 10 years. He is internationally recognized for his work and one of the few Canadian researchers studying the phenomenon of queer and trans youth houselessness. A note about language, we use the word homeless and houseless interchangeably here, um, and just want to note that some folks have recommended using houseless to denote not an emotional lack of lacking a home, but a purely physical one of lacking a house. In our conversation today, I ask about why queer and trans youth are so overrepresented in the house population, and ask how religious intolerance plays a role, what kinds of interventions work, and the available services youth can access. Just a note, there is talk of suicidality, self-harm, and childhood abuse. Dr. Abramovich is so generous with his time and stories um, and breaking down his research for us. It's a truly fascinating conversation, and thank you again to Alex. So the first question is, how did you come to studying queer youth um, and houselessness? What compelled you to focus your scholarly attention on it when so few people are? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and definitely uh, a question that I get asked often. Um, So, you know, thinking about that, I mean, I grew up just outside of Toronto and uh, I would say that like homelessness and houselessness, like that, that's something that's always been uh, of interest to me uh, from a very early age. I, um, because I think that it's, it's such a, uh, in many ways, it's actually a very visible issue, uh, especially in Toronto. And, um, Mm. so it was something that I was, I was interested in from, from a very young age and just, uh, you know, wanting to understand like, why is it that some people, uh, don't have a home? Some people do have a home. Um, and then, you know, as I grew older and I had my, my, you know, I I came out, um, and I would say that, uh, really my own lived experience as a young queer person who had a pretty rough coming out experience, that is primarily what led me to the work that I do today. And I would say that it was through my own personal struggles that I came to uh, that I came to start to understand that there, there is a very strong link between coming out as LGBTQ2S and homelessness, and uh, the you know the long-lasting negative impact that this can have on so many young people. Um, and yeah, I would say that it's also been through through my research and and my work uh, with LGBTQ2S young people that that I actually felt encouraged and empowered to come out as a trans man. And so, um, you know, that was my second coming out uh, at the beginning of my PhD. And I I do feel very grateful to be able to live my life authentically and to also work in an area that I feel so incredibly uh, passionate about. Uh, This has been a very, very meaningful experience for me. So to get into your work itself, um, one number that is pretty staggering is your estimation that 20 to 40 percent of houseless youth in Toronto are 2SLGBTQ+. Um, and I wanted to ask, how did you come to that figure and why is it an estimation versus, you know, why is it hard to know exactly for certain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. I mean, measurement is something that I I definitely talk uh, a lot about and think a lot about as well. And I think that in recent years, we've, we've certainly seen quite a bit more research on LGBTQ2S youth homelessness. It's definitely expanded in, in recent years. But uh, I would say there's still minimal uh, investigation into so many of these issues. And when we think about um, measurement, you know, large scale data collection remains limited across Canada. So as you mentioned, it has been estimated that uh, 20 to 40 percent of youth experiencing homelessness identify as LGBTQ2S. And this statistic that we use is 
It's actually based on several Canadian studies over the years. Some of them are quite old, and others um, are based on um, on a number of like amalgamated um, regional studies or, or uh, like point in time counts that have been conducted by um, you know local organizations, and that provides us with some idea of prevalence uh, you know across the country. But homelessness uh, counts and literature on, on homelessness typically also you know categorize lesbian, gay, bisexual transgender, queer, and two-spirit individuals into one large oh. category. And that's why we use this acronym LGBTQ2S. Uh, but that, it makes it very difficult for us to actually differentiate between sexual and gender minority mm. populations. And so that's why we everyone has just kind of you know clumped together in, in this one category. Mm. And so, something else I want to mention when we talk about like why is it so difficult to 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 measure you know the the, the population. Well, you know, the majority of federal population-based surveys in Canada do not include questions on sexual orientation or gender identity. And this makes it very difficult for us to measure the size of the population. And it ultimately results in a major lack of Canadian data, which I would say is a a critical gap considering uh, the fact that, you know, that we know that that homelessness and poverty and, um, you know, mental health issues that we, we know that there are a lot of, uh, of issues. And so it makes it very difficult if we don't actually, you know, include, you know, these inclusive questions. And so, so many of the data collection tools and key forms, surveys, national level surveys, they don't include these very important questions. Um, and, and then when they do include in- inclusive data, um, you know, collection uh, questions, so many people are missed. Mm. Uh, and the reason that they're missed is because they don't access services. They don't access the places where where the surveys are administered. And the reason that they don't access those services is oftentimes due to safety concerns and also, you know, the issue of hidden mm. homelessness. Um, so there, it's it's you know it's it's very loaded. There's there's like there's so much to to this issue mm-hmm. of measurement. Um, but but something I I, I really do want to want to um, acknowledge and um, something that feels incredibly you know important to to talk about is that we have to ask inclusive questions when we collect mm. data, right? Like doing ethical research, doing ethical work, it involves asking the right questions and uh, making sure that we ask inclusive questions that capture you know, people's actual mm. identities. Because when, um, you know, when we don't ask inclusive questions, then we do not collect accurate mm. data. That's, that's really what it comes down to. People have to see themselves reflected in the response options uh, of questions. We cannot force people into categories that don't represent who they are. Unfortunately, this continues to happen today. Um, and so th- that's why, you know, I, I talk about this. And I mean, we're, we have come, you know, quite, quite far, I would say. And so we're starting to see government surveys, you know, slowly introduce these questions. But we still have a lot of work mm. to do. And I mean, it's just astounding to think about how many gaps there are considering what we could probably very easily do if some <laughs> the right people are consulted. And just a quick side note, I know that in the census, this ongoing census, gender expression is going to be counted. Um, is that right? And what do you think like that might, you know, what possibilities might come out from that? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, for sure, there were some new questions that were mm-hmm. introduced, um, being one of the questions were, you know, what sex were you signed at birth? And then the, the, the next question was, and how do you identify mm-hmm. today? And I think that, that that's like called the, like the two-step gender question. Mm-hmm. And there, um, you know, it, it allows you to capture um, certain people that might be missed if you just ask about gender identity, for example. So, for you know, like there are many trans people who don't identify as trans anymore. Maybe they mm-hmm. did at some point, 
but you know, not now they don't. And so they would check off male or female or man or woman. And so I, I think that for um, the, the purpose of, of asking a sex assigned at birth is because they want to try to get like a true estimate of who has sort of like um, who, who, who might identify as, tra- as trans or, or have that sort of experience in their life. Um, but, you know, I've heard, I've heard really sort of like mixed mm. reviews. There are a lot of people who, who definitely do not ag- agree with that question and, and felt that it was quite mm. invasive to ask about their sex assigned at birth, especially, you know, for, for people who may have um, medically transitioned or, you know, th- there's a lot of work that goes into ensuring that your, that your identification, your government mm. ID aligns with h- how you actually identify. And so it could be, it could actually be quite traumatizing for people to have to, to have to go back to that place that they are, are no longer in. Absolutely. Goodness. Yeah. W- without a doubt. Um, and getting into, so another angle of this podcast, and thank you so much for explaining kind of what, what are the challenges to even know the kind of problem that we're talking about, to know the extent, the scope. Um, and something that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of your work um, is just the role of religious intolerance. Um and how this operates in both individual or systemic ways. And, um, you know, in terms of intrafamily dynamics, in terms of how likely it is for a kid who's trans or queer to leave their home because they feel um, not safe at home. And there's obviously a lot of reasons why a parent might be homophobic, transphobic. Um, And I know that one of the majority of the reasons they cite uh, leaving home is just because of this, uh, because of family dynamics. Um, But so how, how would you assess um, the importance of like familial belief structures um, in sort of leading to youth houselessness and the disproportionate makeup of queer and trans youth in the houselessness population? Um, And yeah, could you basically, could you comment on how religion might be playing a role? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so um, I'll, maybe I'll start by saying that, you know, as you mentioned, one of the primary causes for you, for young people leaving home or for being thrown out of the house is due to family conflict. And that's regardless, actually, of, of you know, gender or sexual identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know through the research, uh, based on my own research and, and other research in the area, that identity-based family conflict resulting from a young person coming out as LGBTQ2S mm-hmm. is a major contributing factor to youth homelessness. And it really is the most uh, frequently cited reason that queer and trans youth um, end up, you know, being forced to leave home. And of course, there are other factors, uh, obviously, you know, and there are uh, some of the other factors might include exiting public systems, you know, such as the child welfare, uh, juvenile justice system, um, unstable, uh, insufficient employment, poverty, racism. Um, And so... Youth describe, you know, the experience of identity-based family rejection Mm -hmm. as creating unsafe environments for them, obviously, right? And this leads to emotional uh, and physical abuse, uh, hospitalizations, homelessness, and it results in, you know, I would say like low self-esteem, fear, anxiety, stress, uh, so many mental health implications. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the... um, there are different sources, obviously, of, of family conflict. And most of the time, like many of the young people I work with, it's 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 very rare that that people will say that, oh, you know, I had a, a perfect childhood, everything was great, there was no family mm. conflict, then I came out, and then that, that was right. it. And then I, I had to leave. Mm. Usually, there is a family history of, of conflict. And then it's like, you know, you come out, and then that's just kind of that, that that's that, that's mm. it. That, that's the kind of the, the point where that you're, you're forced to leave home. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, there, there are people who 
who, who did experience uh, a, a pretty good childhood, for example, or um, that they didn't really have too much conflict and then they came out and that's when the conflict started. I just, I'm just saying that, but you know, it's, it's just, it's more rare. I think those experiences, I think that, that a lot of people have experienced sort of like a long history of, of conflict in the household. Mm. Um, and so uh, I'm just thinking about like h- how religion, you know, c- comes into play. And so this is not necessarily a topic that my research focuses on, but it certainly is something that, that comes up. Right. And so, um, people have talked about family conflict, uh, like, you know, homophobia, transphobia, and religion certainly comes up. So I actually have a quote that I'd like to share with you. So, uh, yeah, so there's a, I recently conducted a study in York region, which is a, uh, suburban, um, community just North of Toronto. And, um, and this project focused on LGBTQ2S youth homelessness in York region, across York region. And that's because we don't have a very good understanding of, 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 you know, the experiences of LGBTQ2S youth who are street involved uh, or at risk living in suburban and semi-rural communities. And so uh, religion came up actually uh, quite a few times uh, throughout that project. And so the, here, here's a quote from a young person who I interviewed. And the person said, my parents said that they don't agree with me existing in a way because of their religion. And they were like, God didn't make you, didn't make that. And we didn't raise you like that. And you should have been better. So then my dad was like, you may as well kill yourself at this point because we don't want you around. And I was like, fine, I'll do it. And that's the first time that I went to the hospital. It's obviously a very um, tragic um, situation. And sadly, it's, it is... Um, tends to be a common narrative that, that I have heard, you know, um, people d- describe situations like this in, in, in many different ways, not always um, based on religion, but um, certainly religion ha- has come up, you know, quite a few times. And, um, you know, I- I'm currently leading a study right now, which looks at the impacts of COVID oh. on LGBTQ2S youth who are at risk of homelessness and experiencing homelessness. And um, it's no surprise that so many young people, you know, spoke about uh, issues related to family conflict. Mm-hmm. Many young people had to move back home because since COVID, you know, maybe they were pre- previously couch surfing and then they were, they were told by their friends, families that, you know, because of COVID, like pandemic, you can't stay here. You need to go back to your house. Mm-hmm. And so they were forced back into situations that weren't safe. And so throughout this project, religion has, has definitely come up as well. And some young people have talked about having to isolate with, you know, unsupportive and religious parents who have used religion as a weapon uh, against their, their children who identify as LGBTQ2S. Mm-hmm. So, so it's certainly something that, uh, you know, a topic that has come up over the years. And, um, you know, if I think about like, what, what could help the situation? Mm-hmm. Like, is, is there something, like, is there some sort of support that could be offered? Mm-hmm. Is, is there something that we can do? Because obviously I think when we, we have to think about like intervention and prevention mm. and w- what are some sort of strategies, some sort of like intervention strategies. And so I want to just talk about PFLAG for a mm. minute. I, I think that PFLAG, you know, PFLAG is, um, PFLAG Canada, there's also PFLAG uh, America, is, uh, is a national nonprofit organization and they offer peer-to-peer support and they bring families together, families and friends of LGBTQ2S uh, people across Canada and pretty much most communities across the country have a PFLAG group. It's very easy to find online. Uh, PFLAG was, uh, was founded by parents who wanted to help themselves and they wanted to help their family members, you know, learn, learn how to understand and accept their LGBTQ2S identified children. And uh, there's actually a resource online called, uh, it's called Faith in Our Families. 
And it's meant to support, you know, uh, religious families in accepting their, their LGBTQ2S children. So I think that there are some really great resources that are available that are actually really meant to help parents um, and, and families um, understand how to uh, how to really support their their young people. But uh, I also want to acknowledge that parents need to understand that family support for queer and trans youth can honestly be a life or death situation. LGBTQ2S youth who come from families that reject them are eight times more likely to attempt suicide than those who receive familial support. And I, I would hope that that would be a wake-up call to, to many. Wow. Yeah, thank you for that answer. That is so thoughtful. Um, and gets yeah, it gets to the question of how might we intervene um, within something that is so behind closed doors and really hard to um, hard to connect with people. And thank you for raising people. Like, I'll link that in the show notes um, for folks who want to explore more of that resource. Um, that's awesome. Um, so our final question today is now related to what services are available to 2SLGBTQ plus youth who do become houseless. Um, what kind of services do they have for them? What limitations are there? And what kind of, you know, inclusive models might we look to for, um, you know, better shelter, um, better assistance from local governments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, I th- when I think back to like when I first started doing this work, and I've been addressing this issue, this issue for nearly 15 years now. So, uh, you know, as an activist, an advocate, as a researcher. And so uh, there's been a lot of changes over those 15 years. And um, I, th- I definitely think that we've come a long way over the years, especially over recent years. Um, you know, it's, it's been in recent years that the first population-based housing programs that are uh, specifically geared towards LGBTQ2S youth uh, have actually opened their doors in Canada. So, um, like a major milestone in Canada was uh, was the opening of YMCA Sprout House, which is located in Toronto. They opened in um, early 2016, and this is Canada's first LGBTQ2S transitional housing program. Um, Sprout House is a 25 bed facility uh, specifically for queer and trans youth who are between the ages of 16 and 24. And, you know, similar to many other transitional housing programs, they offer a wide variety of programs that are really meant to support young people, you know, in a a whole bunch of different ways. But I would say that a major difference between Sprout House and so many of the other programs that we have in place, you know, across the province, for example, uh, is that all of the programs that they offer have have actually been designed through an LGBTQ2S lens. And they they really have, you know, with the needs of, of queer and trans youth really at the center of all aspects of their program. I actually worked quite closely with the city of Toronto and with Sprout House in the opening of, of this uh, service. And then I evaluated the program during their first year. And through that mm. evaluation, we actually found that, you know, the more, majority of youth that I spoke to, they reported feeling a sense of belonging um, and acceptance that they had never felt before. Mm. They, you know, in many cases, they described Sprout House as the first place that they were able to just be themselves without having to fear for their safety which I think is a, a very significant finding because considering that safety issues are, are really a predominant problem that so many queer and trans youth uh, report. A lot of issues around safety, you know, trying to access uh, support services, sa- the, the issue of safety is, is like really uh, always there. Uh, so it was quite incredible to hear young people talk about Sprout House and, and, and say that like, you know, I know I feel safe. Uh, I, I feel safe when I'm there. Mm. So that I, I think was really huge. 
I also found that, um, you know, youth were interviewed when they first moved into the program and then one year later when they moved out. And then they also completed a, uh, a set of uh, standardized surveys uh, focused on mental health. And we found that um, we found that youth experience decreased unemployment and increased school enrollment. So many of them who were unemployed during their first interview, they had secured a job by the second interview or they had enrolled in school, they were finishing high school. And, um, and also, you know, for, for many youth, just their, their confidence, like you could just see it after that one year, they just, they, they came into the room, like with, the, with their head up high, like they just really sort of, um, there was a real shift for many of them. And um, so that's one example, I think, of, 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 a, of a best practice model of something that works really well. But I think that it's, it's not really about just like having these specialized shelters. I think that specialized housing programs, you know, different types of housing programs, obviously that's, that's really quite important. But there are, you know, a whole variety of solutions to, to many of the issues that, I've, that we've been talking about today. And I think that some of these solutions are, are easier to implement and then others, you know, take more resources, they take more time. But something I talk about really often that, that I uh, want to mention is that a standardized model of care is something that we absolutely need. It is so necessary mm-hmm. in order to create uh, safe, accepting and affirming uh, environments for young people. Because when we have a standardized model of care, then people know what to expect when they access services, right? So they know that like, oh, okay, it's going to be the same sort of questions that are asked at intake, that they, they can expect mm-hmm. a similar sort of, you know, a similar sort of thing to happen when they, when they access a service, rather than the way that it's often set up right now, where pe- young people often don't know what to expect. They, they might know that like, okay, this one service has one worker who's, who's really uh, quote, quite in- inclusive and I feel safe speaking to that person. Mm-hmm. But then on the other day, I don't know who's working and I, I don't know if they're going to accept me for, for who I am. So we need to make sure that, that services operate in a similar sort of manner and that, that f- the forms that we include at intake, for example, that they include just basic questions such as like, what name do you go by? What pronouns do you go by? Mm-hmm. Like, how can I address you? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, I think that's just right. so basic, but unfortunately, we're not there yet. Um, it's also very important to ensure that staff receive similar training. So we need to make sure that staff are on the same page. And it's not just about like, okay, well, here's a workshop. So, you know, sign up if you, if you want to take it. Uh, I think that that, uh, unfortunately, we've learned mm-hmm. that doesn't work. You know, I, I did work with the city mm-hmm. to, to develop some, some training. And, um, but the problem is that then, you know, people don't sign up for that training. So um, that, you know, that, obviously that's not going to work. We also have to make sure that, you know, that services are equipped with bathrooms that can accommodate all identities. Like it's, we, we have to move away from this model of like male, female, uh, that we have women's mm. floors, men's floors, women's bathrooms and men's bathrooms. We have to, uh, like, you know, people don't always identify uh, according to the gender binary. So it's very easy to actually to, to replace a gendered, uh, you know, single stall bathroom with a sign that reads all gender. Mm. That's a very, very simple thing. And I think that a lot of these solutions are actually really quite simple, but unfortunately, um, people have really, really complicate a lot of this stuff, uh, oh. sadly, like, you know, even just like ask, just introducing yourself and saying, hi, you know, my name's Alex, I go by he and him, uh, he and him pronouns. Oh. That, that's not very complicated to do, but that can really go a very long way for, for somebody who, who's coming to your, to your service. That can make a huge difference. Um, and so... Uh, I, I think these are just, you know, some of the different different, different things. Obviously, there's there, there's so much that, that goes into this. But I do think overall that programs need to operate in a similar sort of framework, especially like housing programs and like emergency support programs. 
um, because it's really about time that youth can spend less time worrying about, you know, whether or not a program or an organization is going to be inclusive and safe. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And to have also to kind of conclude on this Broadhouse example, to know that this is very possible. It's within our reach. Like you said, I mean, some things require more resources, some fewer, like changing the, the you know, the sign on a bathroom. But um, these are all within our reach. And um, thank you again for your contributions and the work you do. And we are just, yeah, we are incredibly grateful. So thanks for joining Career Devotions today. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been great speaking with you. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. I did want to mention that the resources we talked about will be linked in the show notes, PFLAG, Faith in Our Families, and Sprout House, which is just an amazing model uh, for affirming care. That's all for this time, but we will be joined in our next episode by Dr. Travis Solway, who is a researcher focused on conversion therapy, among other public health issues facing um, queer and trans folks. And we'll get a chance to dig into his most recent research report that found that one in 10 gay men have uh, experienced conversion therapy and that 67% of that has occurred within religious settings. And it's a really fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.